0: Welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. Uh, With me, as always, is Kathleen. Hi, this is Kathleen. With me,
1: as always, is Kate.
0: Yeah, I realize I don't always say my name.
1: I really hope... They know who you are. (laughs) I really hope they know my name. You guys know it's Kate, right? It's always been Kate. It's me.
0: It's me. So, tonight we have the letter J. uh, Second time around, uh, second season. Mm -hmm. So Kathleen, what are we doing for the letter J tonight?
1: We are telling you all about Jane Jacobs, who was huge and instrumental in preserving a lot of really important, really interesting areas of New York City. And it's also credited with being the one who stopped Robert Moses, although it's a little more complicated than that. We'll get into that. Really impressive lady, had a lot of really groundbreaking thoughts about what a city is, and what it is for and how to have a thriving city. Thriving Neighborhoods. I'm going to tell you all about her uh, her thoughts.
0: Yeah, we figured, um, I guess about this time last year, we did the episode on Robert Moses, and this is Robert Moses' arch rival. So we thought it could be fun to do a follow-up just about, and we talk so much still about Robert Moses. It's hard to do a New York City podcast without talking a lot about robert moses He's,
1: if you want you can review and listen to our robert moses episodes there's a link right there and if not if you know it all already because you heard it we'll just jump right in we really pushed the robert moses episode a lot we worked so hard on those <laughs> we did we did we
0: did it's definitely a, our biggest mega episode yes so back to his rival jane jacobs was born jane butzner I actually really like Nay Butzner. Nay Butzner. I think that's kind of a a fun way to say it. Mm. She's born May 4th, 1916 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And after graduating high school, so she worked for a year as an unpaid assistant to the Women's Page Editor at the Scranton Tribune. So she's already getting into writing. During the Great Depression, she and her sister, Betty, both moved, they actually start, they move in to Brooklyn first before right. they move to the city. Betty and Jane. It's kind of cute. It's really cute. It sounds like a, <laughs> it's a boutique clothing store. Betty and Jane. So she moves to Brooklyn with her sister,
1: but falls in love with Greenwich Village, as I think a lot of people do when they first move here. It's hard not to. It's very romantic. Those of you who live here know this. Those of you who visited have probably been there. There's plenty of tourists coming through. And those of you who haven't been, great place to start your tour.
0: Yeah, I plan to get lost. Though I feel like my first few years, I got lost
1: a lot. I still get disoriented. I kind of have to know exactly where I'm going and know a couple of major landmarks. It's it, like we mentioned in the grid episode. It's one of the areas that's off the grid. It's a lot of bending streets and angled streets and streets that intersect with streets. It's a it's such a great area, though.
0: Yeah, like we we've said before, the streets in Manhattan usually intersect the avenues, with Mm. the avenues going north-south, streets going east-west, this is an area where you can totally have two number streets, not avenue and street, but two streets intersect, and it just blows
1: my mind. Parallel lines can intersect, but only in Greenwich Village. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So she falls in love with Greenwich Village, and actually that's the reason she falls in love, one of the reasons she falls in love with it, is because it doesn't actually adhere to the city's grid system, and she quickly moves. To the Greenwich Village so while she's here in the city she goes to back to work as a writer she's a stenographer a freelance writer an editor and I just can't I just have this like Mad Men vision in my head that's what I picture too yeah well mostly because she she works for the Sunday Herald Q magazine and Vogue and once I hear Vogue I just totally see like Joan
1: from Mad Men yes this busy office full of workers
0: at this, around this time, when she first moves here, she does go to Columbia for two years. Uh, she does just a general studies program, uh, she geology, zoology, law, political science, economics. She really doesn't want to be be told what not to study, which kind of becomes an issue at Columbia. She famously says she doesn't want them to own her. She doesn't want to become a Barnard student because she doesn't want Barnard to tell her what she can
1: and can't study. That's the thing. She never really liked school. There's there's some anecdote about how she paid attention in school up to about third grade. And after that, she was like, my teachers are stupid. And she would sneak books into class. She graduated high school. And then other than these classes at Columbia or Barnard, she, she never got her college degree. She never matriculated anywhere which is kind of what makes her ideas so groundbreaking and innovative as compared to sort of academics who approach these things and urban planners who have been studying theory for a while is she came at it with totally fresh eyes totally uninformed totally wrong and completely based her ideas on what she observed as opposed to some existing theories that she might have been trying to fit her ideas into.
0: Now, on the other side of that, because she didn't go to college and because she didn't study all of these things, some of it is a bit layman in terms of the, the ideas. She skips over some stuff. We'll get to it later. Just there's some controversy about what she says and what she believes and what she writes about. And it's kind of just in, I believe, like a lack of formal training formal training
1: exactly. and absolutely and another drawback is it was so much easier to dismiss her ideas uh later on and we'll yes. come to the parts where they're saying oh well this is just some housewife in greenwich village why are we even listening to her then when you take a look at the ideas it's really amazing but the upside is from what i understand i haven't read her book but the death and life of american cities which is a really her, her seminal work uh her first book is immensely readable Apparently it reads like a novel. It you don't it, it doesn't have any academic jargon at all. So you can see a link to that. Also, I would recommend checking it out. The excerpts that I read were quite good.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Kathleen and I are are a little divided on Jane Jacobs, which we'll get into once we actually start talking about her seminal works. Yes. In the meantime, she becomes a feature writer for America with a K. <laughs> A publication of the U.S. State Department, that's where she meets her husband, Robert Hyde Jacobs Jr., who is a Columbia-educated architect. He's designing warplanes at the time. So, they marry in 1944. They, In the course of their life, they have three children, two sons and a daughter, and they buy a house at 555 Hudson Street. You can still go check that place out. It's it exists. Right now. Yep. We will maybe put a picture up of her Absolutely. house, maybe we'll even go take a picture outside her house. Wouldn't but that be
1: fun? Yes, Here, I love we'll. the West Village.
0: The Jacobses rejected the rapidly growing suburbs as parasitic and Parasitic?
1: That's at- so Ooh. harsh. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I sort of agree, but wow.
0: Yeah. Choosing instead to remain in Greenwich Village, they renovate their new house. It's right in the middle of a mixed residential and commercial area. They, and they actually make a garden in the backyard. It's very kind of what's going on now. So what's going on now in New York really has a lot to do with Jane Jacobs and kind of
1: this whole movement that I feel like she kind of starts. Absolutely. It's it's a lot more of live in your neighborhood, work in your neighborhood if possible, instead of having areas entirely sequestered for work over here, industrial over here, and residential over here. It was about having your life. Uh, she has a really beautiful description of what she calls the ballet of the street. Mm -hmm. in the death and life of american cities and it's just in the morning i bring out the trash and i see the grocer across the street and all the children going their way to school and it's just amazing this very ordinary scene that her very keen eye has picked up all these details about what makes living in an area like this so wonderful and so rewarding
0: I think of all the young, they keep talking about how the youth, the young people, the millennials, whatever you want to say, are moving into cities and living in cities. Mm. And they want this dream kind of that she writes about a lot. And it's the anti-Moses, where Moses
1: is all about the suburbs and Mm -hmm. highways. And And driving and the convenience of cars. But so many people want to be able to live without a car and not feel a sense of deprivation as a result of that. And that takes good transportation, but also, ideally, a vibrant neighborhood that you live in. Exactly.
0: So it's it's just, I feel like what's going on right now, not just in New York, but in most major cities, especially in the United States, hmm. it's it's a backlash against the suburbs. People don't want to live so far. They don't want to drive everywhere. And they, we can't afford to buy houses anyway. Exactly. exactly. Uh, so, to go back to Jane, since we keep going off of these tangents, <laughs> she is actually incredibly anti-communist. And she leaves the Federal Workers Union because she found them to have communist sympathies. Mm -hmm. She's very pro-union, though. So when the State Department actually, they actually give her a questionnaire about her
1: political loyalties and beliefs, she falls under suspicion at this time. Mm -hmm. Just being pro-union was enough during the McCarthy era to raise some eyebrows.
0: Yeah. So a good quote from her, her response to this is, The other threat to the security of our tradition, I believe, lies at home. It is the current fear of radical ideas and of people who propound them. I do not agree with the extremists of either the left or the right, but I think they should be both allowed to speak and publish, both because they themselves have and ought to have rights, and once their rights are gone, the rights of the rest of us are hardly safe. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of, I feel like, really wraps up her political leanings mm-hmm. this is really when she starts getting into a lot of her activism as well in terms of urban planning and urban renewal she leaves America because it moves its offices to DC in 1952 and she goes on to take a job at architectural forum and starts covering urban planning and so-called urban blight after covering a story in Philadelphia where she w- she criticized the apparent lack of care shown for poor African-Americans who were directly affected And show the development going on was essentially ending all the community life on the street. So this eyes on the street, which is something she coined, and the ballet on the street. Mm -hmm. She starts questioning modern urban planning methods. This is a woman who's living in a big city. She's seeing how these theories are actually going into effect. So she gives a speech at Harvard after studying the revitalizations of the, of East Harlem, where she asks the attending architects, urban planners, and intellectuals to, quote, respect in the deepest sense strips of chaos that have a weird wisdom of their own, not yet encompassed in our concept of urban order. And this speech, more than anything, marks her as a threat. Yes,
1: this was a, a speech she didn't want to make, but. Her boss, I believe, was supposed to make the right. sick. They said, you have to do it. She was petrified, and she just got her speech and went into the zone and delivered the speech to people who you might think would not be friendly to this kind of message. After this Harvard
0: speech, she was invited to write a piece for Fortune magazine. It's called Downtown is for People. And it's her first actual public criticism of Robert Moses. Mm. So this is really when I feel like his eyes like turn over to this woman. After she writes this article, you have this you have people calling the publisher of Fortune magazine, saying, Who is this crazy dame? <laughs> she also this is when this article that she writes for Fortune, which she never would have gotten unless she'd done the speech at Harvard. Um, brings her into the Rockefeller Foundation and they give her a grant where she's essentially, I think, given three years. Like she gets enough money kind of for three years to work on this piece, which becomes Death and Life of Great American Cities, mm-hmm. which becomes the most, one of the most influential books in the history of American city planning. Mm-hmm. This is where you first see the words, Social capital, mixed primary uses, which I hear all the time. Yeah. Eyes on the street. And she really knocks at city planning, like current city planning. She is not kind to them. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, she she challenges them a lot. So just to elaborate a little bit about Her ideas on the street, her focus was about the life that went on on the street. She cared a lot about what kinds of city streets are safe and what kind are not. One of the quotes is, a city street equipped to handle strangers and to make safety an asset in itself out of the presence of strangers, as the streets of successful city neighborhoods always do, must have three main qualities. So three main qualities to the street. There must be clear demarcation between what is private space and what is public space. Public and private spaces cannot ooze into each other. She said, as they do typically in suburban or housing project settings, this, when I was thinking of public and private space, I was thinking of those tower in the park models that we discussed in the zoning episode with all those, quote unquote, park areas that are private land, but open to the public and... No one really likes them except the homeless people. So she's right. There should be clear lines. This is private. This is public. Her other point uh, of three points, there must be eyes upon the street. Eyes belonging to those we might call the natural proprietors of the street. The buildings on the street equipped to handle strangers and to ensure the safety of both residents and the stranger must be oriented to the street. They cannot turn their backs or blank sides on it and leave it blind. She actually had a really great anecdote in her Ballet of the Street essay that discussed the man who owned the candy store and how it's in his best interest for the street around his store to be safe because if it's not, people aren't going to come to his store. So it's in his best interest to sort of keep an eye out on the street and if there are people lurking around or hassling kids, or something, it's in his interest to have that person not there. And for people who are seeking to do wrong, having, you know, the grocer hanging out, uh, grandma leaning out the window up above, people uh, sitting on their stoop, having people around is a big disincentive for any kind of... Crime or mischief some might want to get up to.
0: Right, it's community policing. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. Which you can't have in a big tower. Mm hmm And a third part of that, similar related to that, is the sidewalk must have users on it fairly continuously, both to add to the number of effective eyes on the street and to induce people in the buildings along the street to watch the sidewalks in sufficient numbers. This is an interesting point. Listen to this. Nobody enjoys sitting on a stoop or looking out a window at an empty street. Almost nobody does such a thing. Large numbers of people entertain themselves off and on by watching street activity. And she's absolutely right. When I lived in an apartment that was on a busier street, I loved hanging out on the stoop. I'm on a quieter street now, and I would never even think of hanging out on the stoop. There's nothing to see.
0: It's true. No, I I live on a I'm medium busy stoop. You should get some traffic. <laughs> some tra- it's some good traffic. And- I love sitting on the stoop. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I actually, I love watching people go by. And it's true. So, hi, I do live next to a very large high school, which I think I've mentioned before. I live mm-hmm. right by Brooklyn Tech.
1: Very prestigious.
0: Very busy. If any kids are listening who go to Brooklyn Tech, you guys are so loud. <laughs> <laughs> At seven in the morning when I'm still sleeping. <laughs> But it's really funny because in the morning, there actually are a lot of people who sit on the stoop and have their coffee in the morning. That's it. And like just watching the kids go by or it's it's kind of policing them because Mm -hmm. when I've noticed when there's nobody out, like in the winter when there's less people out there, there's a lot more garbage on my street. But – when it's warm out and there's people sitting on the stoops and and saying hey to the kids or the kids are walking by, they behave. You guys behave yourselves a lot more then.
1: Yeah, and and she makes some other points about diversity. She says to generate exuberant diversity in a city's street and districts, four conditions are indispensable. I love how she always numbers her. She, she's got yeah. this number, this number. she's got points. It. Exactly, exactly. Which is incidentally a great way to keep people from interrupting you. Yes. If you're like, I have three points to make, then they'll be like, they'll wait till you hit number three. All right, four conditions are indispensable. The district must serve more than one primary function, preferably more than two. So that's kind of stuff we talked about in zoning residential, commercial, offices, manufacturing, things like that. Most blocks must be short. She really likes short blocks. That is, streets and opportunities to turn corners must be frequent. Can you imagine the observations she made to to come up with that concrete yeah, block? Yeah. Like this, I feel like this is something that we all sort of know on a, a subconscious unspoken level. But she's like turning corners, short blocks, crossing streets. That That's how people interact.
0: Yeah, I got to say because those super long blocks in Manhattan oh, that we talked drag. about before yeah. about the distances of some of the blocks being slightly longer, mm-hmm. I really do not go to that part I of town. I love
1: that. I do not love that. If I'm on the east side and I have to get... Across three of the blocks. Yeah. yeah. Grit your teeth and get through it. Two other points. The district must mingle buildings that vary in age and condition, including a good proportion of old ones, so that they vary in the economic yield they must produce. This mingling must be fairly close-grained. Really, really interesting concept. And her fourth point. There must be sufficiently dense concentration of people, again, for whatever purposes they may be there. So what she had in mind was this great area of people coming and going and discussing and running into each other and meeting each other and buying and selling and just interacting, which kind of describes the tenements, the quote unquote slums that really well-meaning urban planners would see and try and figure out ways to fix, to clean up, to improve
0: Yeah, because if you think about the tenements, like, we were talking about Five Points and how there's this whole mythology behind it being so dangerous and so awful. But then if you actually listen to our Five Points episode, we do talk about how crime was not, I mean, it was bad. Sure. Crime was bad. But it was not as bad as some of the reporting. Mm -hmm. Like, some of it's greatly exaggerated. And it's because, and yes, there were crime on the border of these gang ordinaries, these sure. tenements. But in the tenements you had so many people watching out. You had there's so many people on top of each other. That's
1: it. I think for an outsider it's easy for them to see how many taverns and brothels there were. Yes. And there were quite a few taverns and brothels. And it's harder for them to see just newly arrived immigrants or, you know, Americans who happen to be poor just working their jobs, supporting their families trying to save a little cash, or living paycheck to paycheck, how, however it may work out. But I think it's easier to see negative things, to hear the crime statistics, to see, honestly, the filth in the streets and the pigs yeah. eating the trash, because yeah. there wasn't any any sanitary system at the time, and just want to wipe the board clean. I, I understand that urge, but it comes from a, a well-meaning but uninformed place exactly so this this her book
0: essentially calls the entire profession of city planning a pseudoscience which lots of various rich and powerful men robert moses Mm -hmm. are not happy they call Mm -hmm. her a militant dame a housewife (laughs) an amateur who had no right to interfere with established discipline the problem with her book which i have a big problem with is that it leaves out race as an issue and it's very accepting of gentrification. Hmm. But in general, it's it's a very smart, it's very smart work and she makes a lot of great points. But this is the beginning of her famous feud with our favorite villain, yes,
1: Robert Moses, which I will go into uh, a little bit here. So all right, they clashed over three main public works projects that Moses tried to force onto New York City, which when we think back of how had he done that, oh my lord, how horrific this town would be. So one of them was a four lane highway that was planning to go through Washington Square Park.
0: I cannot I can't even <laughs> see that. I know.
1: So it would have been like Fifth Avenue, I guess, and just I'm imagining like South? How... I'm imagining the BQE. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that... All right. Uh, Stay tuned. Four-lane highway going through Washington Square Park. That's where her kids played. So that piqued her interest and her ire. Another one was urban renewal of Greenwich Village. That would have raised 14 blocks in the heart of the neighborhood. This is something he actually accomplished partially. There are some what look like super block housing it's called washington square village it's they're so ugly they're <laughs> ugly there's big empty concrete plazas around them and i don't even want to think about how many brownstones and row houses got flattened to build those
0: and it doesn't feel safe like i've walked through that area at night and mm-hmm. i i used to work just a few blocks south of that in soho mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel safe cuz it's wide open there're never Just what we were talking about before, there's never anybody there. there. If you compare it to Washington Square Park, where there's always stuff going on. Mm -hmm. I don't care if there's, like, drug deals going on in the corner. (laughs) There's, like, parents with kids at the other end. There's, There's like, musicians.
1: There's old guys playing chess. There's tons of college students. Got places lousier than NYU kids.
0: But really, just several blocks south, and you have this disgusting... (laughs) Sorry if you live there. Mm. Washington Square Village, where... It's It's just sort of deserted.
1: Yeah, kind of creepy. You kind of hurry through it on your way to more human-scaled buildings in Soho or in West Village. Uh, And his third thing, this... Oh, hold on. We discussed this briefly in the Robert Moses episode, of course, is the 10-lane elevated superhighway, the Lower Manhattan Expressway, or Lomex. This would have cut through... Hold on to your butts. Soho, Chinatown, Little Italy... And the Lower East Side. Where would these people be going? The, it would have connected West Side Highway to the BQE, something like that. It's so gross. So, as awful as a four-lane highway through Washington Square Park sounds, Lomex basically would have been the BQE or the Major Deegan or the Cross Bronx, but it would have obliterated some very interesting, weird, cool, gorgeous neighborhoods. Old. Old neighborhoods. Old neighborhoods. Yeah, those beautiful cast iron buildings in Soho, gone. Chinatown, Little Italy, Lower East Side. If nothing else, the tourists love these areas.
0: Plus it would have been awful because Lower Manhattan would have been completely cut off by this. And we have seen with our last episode with Isolated especially,
1: Mm -hmm. what happens to areas when they're cut off. Willett's Point and Hunt's Point. Bad things happen to areas when they're cut off. Exactly. So can you imagine how awful
0: Lower Manhattan is really, especially post-September 11th, has really become revitalized. There's a Mm -hmm. lot going on in Lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things is a cocktail bar (laughs) called... Actually, it's very Mm. history-related. The Dead Rabbits Mm. would never have existed. Absolutely
1: not. Well, there'd still be Wall Street. There'd still be stuff around there. But still, it's... I it's hard to think about how how bad things would be if Lomax had been built and so her her approach her her ways of making this not happen which honestly people have been trying against Robert Moses for decades he is sort of on his way out already he'd had a few hits by the point by the time that she showed up this is the 50s she wasn't entirely responsible for you know his his ouster but She certainly had really great methods, and her methods were three-pronged. She had grassroots organizing. She drew in lots of allies just from the neighborhood and the community. She put pressure on local politicians, and she had a stepped-up campaign to gain attention in the media. So grassroots, local politicians, and the media. Apparently, the war room in her house on Hudson Street A, it sounds incredibly elegant. Everyone's smoking cigarettes and drinking martinis as they hash out their plan to keep a 10-lane elevated superhighway out of the neighborhood. And B, she had to detach her doorbell from its battery and just left her front door open because so many people were coming in. She was so, so good at this. Uh, I want to make a quick side note about the big book of Robert Moses. The Power Broker. The Power Broker. By Robert Caro. Awesome, amazing book. Immense, huge, epic book. It's 700,000 words. It weighs four and a half pounds. I own a copy, and I can't read it on the subway unless I'm sitting down. Wow. I do have fairly scrawny arms, though. But the reason I'm telling you the size of this book, she's not in it anywhere. And a lot of people, where where is... Jane Jacobs, why isn't she in Power Broker? What the heck? They were they were the epic battle of, of New York City. The original... You're not going to believe this. The original Power Broker, the original version, was a million words long. Oh, my God. Robert Caro had to cut a third of it out. For whatever reason, they, the publishers wouldn't let him do a two-volume bio. And if you see this book on a shelf or if you've read it yourself, you know... If it was a single page longer, you'd have to split it into two volumes. So they weren't going to let him do a two-volume. Two-volume bios did not sell as well. He had to cut a third. So not only was the Jane Jacobs chapter cut out, and apparently it was a very well-written chapter, according to Robert Caro's wife and research assistant, Ida Caro. Not only was Jane Jacobs cut, they also cut out the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, the City Planning Commission, and the Port Authority. Wow. Really huge, important topic. So when you see that book, and I highly recommend it, it's insanely readable. It's really, really good. But that so much had to be cut out is is mind-boggling.
0: what you should do then is write to the publisher... And demand that you want the
1: additional 300,000 words added back in in a new edition. A lot of people have have said this and they're like there have been what 30 reprintings of this put them back in or publish them as a separate collection of essays or something like that. Also on the Robert Moses topic there is an opera. No. Yes. Robert (laughs) Moses versus Jane Jacobs and you can see a link down there for more information. Because it is a good story for an opera. It's it's highly dramatic and the stakes are very, very high and everyone cares about both sides, and I would love to see this. Also, if you really
0: want to see more, if you're really, really super interested mm. in the battle between Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs, maybe we'll try to find a way to get a link to in the late nineteen nineties uh PBS. Mm did a m- documentary series on New York's history, and there's a full hour out of its 14 hours. Oh, my God. So Lord. if I can find a link just to that hour, there's a full hour that's just about the two of them and their epic battle.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I want someone to do a
1: comic book, like the battle between. <laughs> you hear that, comic book writers? How about it? Max Brooks? Yeah. Of the Harlem Hellfighters? This, Fighters? Could, this could be your next your next big thing. Think about it. Something to think about. So she had a a couple of interesting ideas and a couple of interesting quotes that I do want to state here. And I learned an interesting word called unslum. Oh. Yes. And her ideas about how to unslum an area, which I don't think is necessarily the same as gentrification. Mm. And I'm not too familiar with her ideas on gentrification. Kate knows more about that. But her thoughts about how to unslum an area is that you do it by adding to the area. So... The issue is uh, Robert Moses wanted to do some slum clearance in the West Village, which is an amazing, magical, adorable neighborhood. He wanted to raise the whole thing and build some super block housing, and this was part of what she was protesting against. She and her team who were protesting hired an urban planner of their own to come up with their own plan for the West Village. The idea was to take the empty lots in the West Village and add housing there. But not the super block housing to add it in scale with the existing buildings. Her quote was not one sparrow would be displaced. Hmm. The idea is you don't unslum an area by taking things away, by knocking things down, by kicking people out, by scrubbing at scorched earth and starting from scratch. You add positive things to an area. You don't take away negative things. And that is how you improve an area. That sounds like gentrification. And I cannot believe I'm going to stick up with
0: Robert for Robert Moses right now. I can't either. But I'm going to say, what Robert Moses did was something worked once, and he just stuck with that idea and just yep. nev- like a dog with a bone. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just talking about the tenements and how they weren't as dangerous as. They're very dangerous, but they weren't as bad as as some of the journalism at the time was making them out to be. However, they were bad, and they needed to be raised. Not all of it, but they really needed to clear out a lot of the tenement
1: areas. I'm thinking about the East Village and the Lower East Side, and as everyone knows, in the 70s and 80s, it was a horrible time to be in the city in general, but also uh, there was a lot of drugs. There was a a lot of crack houses. What they did, if you go to the Lower East Side now, it is amazing how many community gardens there are. Yes. You cannot walk down the block Without. and not pass a community garden. Do you know why that is, Kate? Tell me, Kathleen. They knocked down crack houses. You couldn't just kick the people out. You couldn't just turn it over to the city. You couldn't just gut rehab it because dealers and buyers would, would keep come showing up. They had knocked it down and they made a garden. And they did that everywhere. I don't know if that's the story behind every single community garden in the East Village, but oh my lord, are there a lot of community gardens in the East Village.
0: Well, when I mean tenement clearing, Mm -hmm. I I don't mean tear down the entire building these people live in, but there were like structures built in backyards. There Mm -hmm. were structures built on roofs. There were just a lot of things that had to be cleared out, and some of that stuff is good that it was cleared out. Sure. There were illegal buildings that just were not up to code, Mm. that were unsafe, Mm. you had no windows in rooms, Mm. you had no ventilation coming into spaces. So a lot of these buildings that were not built up to sanitary conditions, what we can consider sanitary now, Mm. really, I I feel like some of that stuff had to happen. So I do feel like occasionally you have to clear out some of that stuff. But the problem is Robert Moses, like, stuck with that idea, Mm. where he's like,
1: clear it out this is how
0: it always has to go so i see why his idea is we have to get rid of it
1: Mm. because it worked once sure and he just assumes it's gonna that's the only way to go and in a sense to the extent of the problems you're talking about it does quote unquote work it does get rid of those structures but the question is is there a better way this is similar to the discussion we had with our last episode on isolated and its Point is right next right. to City Field, and is there any way to help people in that area without destroying their lives, without completely uprooting them?
0: And the problem, well, to go back to gentrification and Jane Jacobs, the problem is just by adding stuff, mm. you continually add things, you continually add nicer and nicer things, the neighborhood gets better, but by adding these nice things... Eventually, you're taking away. You're taking away the things that were there to make space for these new things that you're adding.
1: I mean, what, what this specific quote is about is... What to do with the empty lots? So I, I, I only have this one quote. I'm not entirely right. sure. I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> I just think <laughs> uh, it, give her credit for some idea that I might not have uh, conveyed in its yeah. in its context.
0: I just think she it snowballs, and I think she didn't think about the ramifications, like way down the road. Like, yes, you're cleaning. Yes, you're doing this. Yes, mm-hmm. you're bringing in more people, and you know, she. I, I like the basis of what she wants to do, but she doesn't. Talk about what happens next. Mm. Like, how do you keep the neighborhoods? How do you keep the people in the neighborhoods? So they don't get priced out. Mm. How do you keep the the candy store that's been on the corner for forty years mm. from losing its lease because somebody wants to open a swanky restaurant right, or right. a boutique?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That's my only thing, and I don't know if she could have seen that far. And that's that's the thing I was saying about how she didn't go to school for this. She. Right just didn't have enough to keep going with it. And she's lauded, which she should be. She has some really great ideas. But there's not enough future thinking Mm. on her part, Mm. if that makes any sense.
1: Possibly. I've got to read her book. Okay. (laughs) Yes. One interesting point. Uh, A woman who wrote a book about Jane Jacobs, I listened to an interview, said the best, most favorable, most vibrant, most popular neighborhoods in New York... Are the ones that Robert Moses didn't touch. They're the ones that are, that the tourists love, that I love, that you and I can never afford to live in. The ones that need the most care and rebuilding are the ones that he did touch. And we kind of mentioned that in a num- number of the areas we were talking about last week in isolated way. areas. Hunts Point and Willett's Point were affected by the highways that went through. One quote of hers is, It is not TV or illegal drugs, but the automobile has been the chief destroyer of American communities. One interesting thing about her, she typically turned down awards, like 30 honorary degrees, including one from Harvard. Wow. Like Kate said, she had less than two years of classes at Columbia, at Barnard. She took that without pursuing a degree. She didn't like school. And like Kate was saying, she was a writer early in her career, did some clerical work, secretarial work, and then just progressed right on to writing. Another quote, potentially inflammatory, credentialing, not education, has become the primary business of North American universities. That's very relevant today. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, and one really interesting point about her protests and and, uh, her work with... Uh, Defeating Robert Moses, a quote of hers is, never negotiate. Just fight, fight, fight. After you win, then you can sit down and negotiate. But the time that you are protesting a planned superhighway or a destruction of a neighborhood, that is not the time to negotiate. First get them to concede, then afterwards you can negotiate. A tip for everyone. That's pretty great. Kate will tell us a little bit about her later life. So I don't want to go
0: too much into her later life because it's not relevant. Well, it's relevant, but she doesn't live in New York. And because we are New York-based podcasts. New York City
1: podcasts. We must have our limits, people. Sorry, guys.
0: There's a whole other life she lives after this. (laughs) She ends up leaving New York... She continues to fight this expressway going through Washington Square Park Mm -hmm. and and Greenwich Village. She fights in 1962, 1965, 1968. Uh. Every time it comes up, she is there. She gets arrested. She gets arrested at some point in 1968. And at the public hearing, the crowd charged the stage and destroyed the stenographer's notes. (laughs) She's very popular. Yeah. She's accused, of course, of inciting a riot, criminal mischief, and obstructing public administration. And that could have been jail time, right? It could have been serious jail time. She had kids. She She had had
1: High school, grammar school kids.
0: It gets reduced to disorderly conduct. She's living in Toronto at the time. She leaves because she has, of course, two sons who are of draft age. Mm -hmm. She's very anti the Vietnam War, and she does not want her sons sent off to war so the whole family moves to Toronto but she she comes back
1: to fight the good fight mm-hmm. and it's interesting as soon as she moves to Toronto she's trying to live a normal life just want to be a writer she has to protest another highway that's about to cut through their Toronto neighborhood, which she successfully does.
0: Yeah, she fights and fights. <laughs> she's she's pretty amazing. Yeah. She she lives a very long life. I'm really not going to, like I said, we're sorry, guys. When we do ABC Toronto, we'll <laughs> go into it. She does the good fight for years and years. She lives actually until 2006. That's pretty, it's pretty amazing life. She was life.
1: Uh, close to her 90th birthday when she died. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Her family upon her death left a statement that said what's important is not that she died but that she lived and that her life's work has greatly influenced the way we think. Please remember her by reading her books and implementing her
1: ideas. And I think that's actually a good sp- way to to end this episode. Absolutely. And you'll find a link down there so you can see what all of her books were. While The Death and Life of American Cities was her first book and pretty much the one that she's most known for, she considers Economy of Cities her most important book. Economy of Cities is a boring-sounding title. I'll just say it, but apparently it is super readable. Apparently it's amazing, amazing book. So you can see that link right there. Click on it.
0: Yeah, I might add it to my fall reading. My summer reading is totally filled, so no <laughs> no more reading. I, I I will add her to my fall fall reading. I have a huge stack by my bed. So, we have a bit of news for our uh ABC Gothamites. Two pieces of very exciting news. Pay pay attention. Listen up. So, the first piece of news is that this weekend, which won't mean anything to you by the time this podcast comes out. Very soon, very soon, we will be guests we're going to be guests on Hey, You Know It, which we have been guests before. We
1: highly recommend the show. It's hysterically funny. Our friends Katie Kasmer and Jaqueta Sakmari host this hilarious podcast. They often speak up and uh, and tout ABC Gotham, and we want to do the same. They're awesome, and we will be on an upcoming episode. The link will be provided on the Facebook page and on the ABC Gotham page as soon as that episode drops.
0: Yeah, two fantastic ladies. The other really big piece of news that we have been kind of hinting at for, like, a year? Here it comes! Is that we are finally having the official ABC Gotham quiz. We are taking over a bar for a day, one mm-hmm. afternoon,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: we would love to have as many of you there
1: as possible. This pub quiz will be August 17th, and that is a Sunday. It is going to be at the Cherry Tree Bar. We have all the information below. You can find it right there. Super close to the Barclays Center. It is in Brooklyn, but pretty much every subway line goes there. All the details are below. We would love to see you. There are going to be drink specials, prizes, pizza, It's gonna be a blast.
0: Yeah, they have promised they will extend their happy hour just for ABC Gothamites. Mm -hmm. We, like Kathleen said, there will be prizes for winning. We might have a giveaway just for signing our mailing list. Mm -hmm. Just show up, we'll take care of you. You just buy
1: the beer. Mm -hmm. And if you're wondering what to do with the kids, I have good news. Marvel Universe Live is going to be at the Barclays Center, not two blocks away. Throw the kids there. They'll watch an amazing show while you get to relax, have a nice cold pitcher, and indulge your love in New York City history.
0: Yeah, so start thinking up those team names. You get to actually
1: see what we look like. That too. If you haven't figured that out from Facebook already. Yes. All right, well, thank you, Kathleen. This has been great. Thank you, Kate. I hope you guys learned something about Jane Jacobs you didn't know before.
0: Yeah, I think I I definitely... This was somebody I, I really didn't know too much
1: I just about. She knew the name until we started. Doing and we research. did a double J. So. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: All right. See you next time, guys. Bye, everyone.
1: For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, www.abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. With me on this night of New York City. I wish you could be here with me on this night of New York City.